Our gospel lesson this morning is the lectionary gospel text for this day. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the lectionary, the lectionary is a three-year cycle of scripture readings. And actually, in the back of our hymnal, it is, uh, the whole lectionary is there, so you can see what the readings are for each week of the year. Like I say, it's a three-year cycle, and each year corresponds with one of the three synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so this year, we're in year C, and our texts primarily, our gospel texts primarily, come from the gospel of Luke when we're using those lectionary texts. And so I often will turn first to the lectionary when I am going to be preaching and see what the text is for the day. And when I first came upon today's text, I said, okay, that's fine, I'll skip that and go to another one. And I went to the other texts for the day and I kept skipping them. And I thought, what's in that skipping? And what should I be thinking about? And I paused and I said, all right, perhaps when we want to skip a text is precisely when we should read it and when we should lean into it. And so listen now for the word of God in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are indeed grateful for your word for us this day. We pray that you might help us to listen and to hear. In your son's name we pray. Amen. When I was practicing law, some of the most challenging cases I worked on involved disputes between family members related to an estate. I did not typically work on these cases, but when I did, it was because they had reached a point of such complexity or acrimony where our team needed to include a broad range of litigation attorneys. In some of these cases, you may be surprised to hear this, in some of these cases, we would incur hundreds of thousands of dollars a month in legal fees. And these cases would go on for many months and sometimes even years. And what I found over and over again is that regardless of the success of one party or another, they never ended well. They never ended well. 
And they were almost always the result of long existent and deep division and discord. This is part of why good estate planning attorneys and family wealth planners are some of the most expensive professionals out there, right? Because they have this, this difficult job of trying to help people control things after they're seemingly beyond control, right? After their death. The people who hire them want to do whatever they can to ensure that their wishes with regard to their estate are honored. There are a lot of motivations here, whether it's tax impacts or uh, family dynamics, all of these things. And so often the question that we're asked if we go into see an estate planner is, what are your wishes, right? What are your wishes now? What are your wishes when it comes to your estate? What do you want to do? Or really, what do you want to prevent from happening? Disputes about wealth. Disputes about money. Whether intra-family disputes or business disputes, so many disputes, so much fighting is about money. And the interesting thing about first century Palestine, though, is that it was often, more often than not, the rabbis, the religious leaders, the teachers, really, who were the ones who would issue legal rulings when there was a dispute especially about money, and especially disputes among family. And part of the reason for this is that we know that disputes among family about money have been around for a very long time. Written thousands of years ago, there were biblical imperatives about how estates should be divided. In both Numbers and Deuteronomy, the, the rules of inheritance are spelled out pretty clearly. The oldest son should receive a double portion. That's what's written. But part of why he receives the double portion is because the oldest son is then responsible for the father's estate after the father dies. This is the rule. It's actually pretty straightforward. You may remember that a couple weeks ago we had a, another familiar estate dividing text, the, the story many of us are familiar with already, the parable of the prodigal son, where the younger son asks for the estate to be divided before the father has died. In that text, the father divides the estate just as the child requests while he's still alive. Now, one of the problems that you may have keyed into in that text, and a further reason for that older son to be upset, is that the value of the estate was not yet fixed. That would happen after the death of the father. As a result, anything given to the younger son in that moment was likely more than what he was entitled to receive, and it potentially reduced the amount that the older son would have to manage that estate later. And the younger son would never have to worry about that. That was purely the concern of the older son. And the father was not following the rules of inheritance. And it's interesting because Jesus never critiques the father. In fact, he, he praises the father. The father is the hero of that story. And so here we are now, a couple chapters later in Luke's gospel, with another text, and there are several others about inheritance within Luke's gospel. And we have this text now where we have a little bit of a perplexing situation. I think it's helpful for me to share with you a little bit about what's gone on in chapter 12 leading up to this point. Earlier in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, we learn that Jesus is teaching a very large crowd of people. 
The crowd is packed so tightly that Luke writes that they're stepping on each other. There are thousands of people there, Luke writes. In the first 12 verses of chapter 12, Jesus is foretelling his death. And he's also acknowledging in this prophetic text that the end of his time on earth is coming. In fact, immediately before this, Jesus has deliberately and publicly attacked the religious leaders, and they begin to make their plans for his demise. Jesus is calling upon those who are gathered to be ready for what's going to have. These are like his final instructions that he's giving. He's, he's told them, be ready for what's going to happen. He tells them that the things that have been hidden, the things that only they've known, things about his identity, things about the miracles, things about his, his teachings, all of these things are going to come to light and everyone's going to know them after his death. And they're going to be at risk these people who've heard him and followed him. They're going to be at risk. This is right after, again, it's right after he's essentially laid out his upcoming death. He's humiliated his opponents, and they are plotting, and they are planning, and they're laying traps for him. Professor and author Luke Timothy Johnson writes this about the situation in those first 12 chapters. This is what he writes. He says, In everything Jesus now says, there is danger for him and his followers. To heighten the tension, Luke has Jesus surrounded by a crowd so large that people are being trampled. The atmosphere is electric as Jesus turns to his disciples to teach them. The instructions on fear and anxiety are, in this context, psychologically convincing. Fear is no longer religious awe at the miracles of Jesus, and anxiety no longer preoccupation about the minutiae of hospitality. Now is the time to face terror at arrest and persecution and possibly death. This is a huge moment. The ship is going down, and Jesus is giving these final instructions to say how they can survive. He's preparing them. He's warning them. He's trying to get their priorities straight. And that's when we get to verse 13, where our scripture text started today. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What? what? It, it's almost laughable when we look at that context of what's just happened, of what's going on in that moment. This, this man walks up to him, and in other circumstances, it might have made sense. That's what you do. You take an issue like that to the rabbi. And he might have been willing to address it, perhaps, in another setting, But like the proverbial rearranging of the deck chairs on the Titanic while the famous ship is sinking, this man's request, it's not only absurd, it seems futile. And frankly, it visibly agitates Jesus. This man is asking Jesus to take on a role of resolving a legal dispute about money. While Jesus is facing the end with urgency, 
And so, yes, this man sets him off and Jesus doesn't, well, he does help him. He refuses to do what he asks, but it's not that he doesn't help. You see, what Jesus does is something that Jesus often does. He turns the tables a bit and he uses this moment, a moment of anxiety and fear, not just for this young man, but for that whole crowd, a moment of uncertainty. He uses a moment and a time of unrest, of threats, a moment that in many ways looks like moments we all experience, whether it's when we're reading the newspaper, struggling with our health or relationships. It's a a moment that looks like our economic uncertainty and wars and threats of wars. A moment that looks like difficulty adjusting to a new stage of life, like struggles with grief and loss. A moment that looks like the fear and anxiety about the future, about our future perhaps, or also about the future of our loved ones, people we care about. You see, in this moment of fear and anxiety, when Jesus is standing there with this large crowd, Jesus turns to that crowd and to this man, but also to this crowd, and he tells a parable, a parable about money but also a parable about that fear and anxiety and a parable about greed. I can almost hear the disciples groaning. I groaned when I read this text a few weeks ago. And like I said, I thought about skipping it and choosing another text. As a new member of your pastoral staff, my first thought when reading this text was that it just didn't feel like a warm summer text. Maybe it would be more appropriate, I thought, for a season of stewardship, an appropriate parable for the season when churches traditionally talk about money. And perhaps it is. Perhaps it is. But perhaps also, it is about far more than money. Just like stewardship is about far more than dollars and cents. Perhaps this is a text that is inviting us to be more fully understanding of what it means to live a life of abundance. Abundance. Abundance that isn't found in the things of this world, Abundance that isn't found on paper and bank accounts. Abundance that isn't grain-filling storehouses. In this parable, Jesus says that the wealthy farmer looks at his wealth and he says to himself, My soul, you have many good things laid up for years to come. Relax, eat, drink, enjoy yourself. And this statement that he makes to himself, it, it sounds good. And not only does it sound good, it sounds biblical. We know that Jesus did these things with his friends. He ate, he drank, he enjoyed life. And throughout scripture, we can find examples of God's desire for humanity enjoy, to enjoy life. In fact, this, this phrasing, right, that he uses, eat, drink, enjoy yourself, this comes straight out of scripture in the book of Ecclesiastes. And there are other times throughout the Bible where these phrases are used. 
But in this parable, there's something a little bit different going on. If you look closely at verses 17 through 19, that's the part where the man is talking, you'll notice that the words I and my, I and my, are exceedingly prevalent. He talks repeatedly to himself and about himself. He talks about what he's going to do and what he will do specifically for himself. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of anyone else either. It's purely the man and his goods, the man and his grain, the man and his money, the man and his enjoyment. You see, it is not his wealth that Jesus is decrying here. It is not his wealth. And throughout Scripture, whenever we hear Jesus talk about money, and Jesus talks about money more than just about any other topic, whenever we hear Jesus talk about money, he's not usually talking about the state of having resources or financial security. That's not what Jesus is usually talking about. Rather, Jesus is talking about greed, the desire for more, the desire that will never be quenched to have more. And Jesus is also talking about priorities. Priorities with how we live our lives. Priorities with how we live among others in community. Priorities when it comes to honoring God. So what Jesus is doing here is inviting us to reflect on the ways that our lives, and that includes our resources, can give praise to God. Jesus invites us to consider how we make room for God in our lives. Jesus invites us to orient ourselves toward God and toward our neighbor and toward God's works of love. It really is this simple. And yet somehow, it's not simple. There's a phrase that Jesus uses in this parable that has stayed with me and perhaps provides some space for reflection. It's right at the end of our text. And Jesus' critique of the man is that he is not rich toward God. I wonder if you heard those words. The critique isn't that he's wealthy. It isn't that he has financial success. It is that he is not rich toward God. Being rich toward God. What does that look like? What does it look like for us to be rich toward God? What does it look like in our individual lives to be rich toward God? And and what does it look like for us to seek the abundance that is found in God? We, we know how to seek the abundance of the world. We know how to do that. But how do we seek the abundance that is found in God? Throughout Scripture, it is undeniable that God provides for God's people. This is repeated so many times in Scripture. It was in the Psalm 107 on the cover there of the bulletin. 
We learn throughout scripture that, that God, the God who designed you and me in the divine image, also designed us to be ones who experience the experience of being provided for by God. And God invites us to encounter God and in encountering God to experience the wonder of God's ability to satisfy every hunger we have, the hungers that can never be satisfied by the things of this world. Being rich toward God in an interesting twist, being rich toward God means allowing God to be rich toward us. Being rich toward God means depending upon God. Being rich toward God, though, also means caring for whom God cares, which are the people around us, the world around us. It means caring for the world God created. Being rich towards God means looking for people who are carrying burdens and then easing those burdens as we can. Being rich toward God means listening to God. Like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teaching. We heard that read to us a couple weeks ago. And for us, being rich toward God means setting apart time in our lives to read scripture, to allow God to continue to speak to us. Being rich toward God means turning to God in prayer. Being rich toward God. You see, when we come to God, when we approach God and allow God to fill our every hunger, when we come to God, when we are rich toward God, we begin to see in our lives that God's provision spills over into every aspect of our lives. God is able to bring that fulfillment so that even in the midst of challenges and in the midst of our sorrows and our struggles, even in the ways and the times we feel lost or we are afraid or we are anxious, in all of these things, we become reminded again that God will be with us, that God will be with you, and that God will take care of you. A little bit after this, in this text, after the parable is completed, Jesus says, seek God, and God will give you all that you need. And friends, especially when we have the things of this world that we need, especially then, we have an opportunity to wonder what it is that God can provide. That, that God will provide. What is it that God will provide that we can never provide for ourselves? What is it? As we look around at the beauty of the world, as we, as we consider all that God has done, I wonder if it becomes a little easier to imagine the riches that can come to our lives from the God of the universe. Because that's the God who's made these promises to you. Seek God, Jesus says. 
Don't fear, Jesus says. Place your trust in me alone. Be rich toward God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.